found a flaw in the reality or in the model that i perceived is the critical functioning structure that defines how the world works so to speak Hi, and welcome to NPR's Planet Money. I'm Laura Conaway. Today is Thursday, October 23rd. It's about 4.27 p.m. here in New York City. Adam Davidson is off today making a pitch for Planet Money at a conference about emerging media models. He's also filing for Morning Edition. It's a piece about economists actually agreeing on what to do in the financial crisis. You can hear that Friday morning. That was Alan Greenspan you just heard there at the top of the podcast. The former Federal Reserve chairman spent the day on Capitol Hill. He told lawmakers that he was shocked to find flaws in the market for risk. Greenspan noted that the brilliant minds behind credit default swaps and mortgage-backed securities won great big prizes like the Nobel for their theories about transferring risk and making lots of money. So much for that. We've got a great show today. We're going to take a question about the new end of the world, hedge funds, and we're going to talk through the situation in the rest of the world with some people who darn well ought to know. First, in the Planet Money Indicators today, I'll just tell you that the TED spread ticked up again a nubbin. It had been falling for a few days, sometimes dramatically. Right now, it's at 2.57. The TED spread, you'll remember, tells us how much anxiety banks have about lending to each other. Economists like to see it below one. A couple of people on the blog today noticed a dire prediction by Noriel Rubini. He's the economist most noted for forecasting the subprime mortgage crisis. Basically, you're living out what Rubini foresaw a couple years back. Now, Rubini says that hedge funds, those giant, often secretive investment groups, hedge funds are in danger of toppling over and taking the rest of the market with them. That's what he told a hedge fund conference yesterday. Rubini said the situation is so bad that governments might have to close the stock markets temporarily, call a stock market holiday, stop the panic, sort things out. Well, that brought this question from listener Amy Innes of Clover, South Carolina. Basically, um, what I'm hearing or what I've read is that hedge funds could lose as much as 30 percent of that industry. And if that were to occur, I think it would have a major effect on the stock market. And if it had a major effect on the stock market, I think it would have a major effect on companies in the U.S., and that wouldn't have a major effect on our economy. So I just wanted some clarification of how much money are we talking about. Now, we tried to find Nouriel Rubini. Adam Davidson knows him fairly well by now from covering him. But it turns out Rubini was on a plane from London where he gave this dire forecast to Madrid. I don't know what he's going to say when he gets to Spain. But Rubini's office over at RGE Monitor, it's a website that covers the economy, of course. Well, they sent another genius over there to us. Her name is Elisa Parisi. I got on the phone with Parisi and asked her, what's the deal? She said, to imagine you're a hedge fund and you own a bond from an emerging market, someplace like Argentina, which has been exporting goods and everything's going just fine. Then uh, the credit cycle turns in the, in the developed countries 
commodity prices keep on going up, and there is a talk of decoupling. Now, hold on. You know those interviews where the reporter is talking to someone who speaks another language, like Laotian or something, and you hear the person's voice, and they go on a little bit in Laotian, and then the tape cuts out so the translator can talk and tell you in your language what's going on? Well, today the translator is David Kestenbaum. He's the Planet Money reporter who shared this interview. All right, all right. So as I understand it, Argentina is just minding its own business. Things are going really well. A hedge fund has loaned them money by buying their bonds, right? Mm-hmm. And then because of the credit crisis, someone who'd loaned the hedge fund money so they can do their thing says, uh, we're going to need a little more money from you. So the hedge fund says, uh, where do we get this money? I'm going to have to sell those Argentinian bonds. And mm-hmm. we have to sell a lot of them. In fact, a lot of hedge funds are all doing the same thing. So right. everyone starts selling the Argentinian bonds. And Argentina, which is minding its own business now, the price of its bonds goes way down. So everyone looks at that and says, oh, they're looking very risky because their bonds are dropping, right? Right. And so all the everybody else who happened to invest it in Argentinian bonds, like, I don't know, pension funds or mutual funds, uh, they're thinking, oh, maybe we don't want to be invested in them anymore because they're looking like higher risk. And right. so this is the sort of vicious cycle you're talking about. Right. And that's how it affects the rest of us. And this is called contagion, yes. How does that contagion spread to the United States? Uh, actually, it, it started in the United States, if you will. So it's, the concerns are global. It's not only in the U.S. Um, if you look at uh, markets overnight in Europe, they were down. In Asia, they are down. So it's, it's, it's not really only the U.S. Now it is a global crisis. We're in this together. But you're really saying that you think the situation with hedge funds could uh, create a situation that's so bad that some countries have to start shutting down their stock markets? Well, some countries did already. If you look at Russia... No, but the hedge funds. We're talking about the hedge funds, right? Uh, only because of the hedge funds? Yeah, I mean, I thought that was the allegation made in the news stories we were reading. Well, if... if as we said, there, there are feedback effects that may start with hedge funds, but it will it, it, it ends up uh, affecting uh, the prices of securities that everybody holds. So it may start with them, but uh, by themselves they are not big enough to to bring a market down. But through the contagion effects, they are able to to infect markets overall. Yes. So they would be a trigger. They would be a trigger. As were the subprimes. They were just a trigger. It's not uh, whatever is happening now. It started with subprime, but it was a trigger because the same problems underlying subprime you were seeing in leveraged loans, you were seeing in low lending standards all over the world. So it's just a trigger. It's not a confined problem. Let me just argue the other side for a second from, you know, other people I've talked to. They say, first of all, everyone gives hedge funds too much credit. You know, they're big, but they're not that big. I mean, if you look at the uh, mutual fund industry, that's something like 40 or $25 trillion worldwide. You know, mm-hmm. hedge funds are something like $2 trillion. Second of all, hedge funds aren't really as leveraged as everybody thinks they are. Third of all, if you want your money out of a hedge fund, um, there are all these rules saying, you know what, you want it today? Well, you have to ask, well, we won't, we'll give it to you, you know, but 30 days from now. So you can't just yank your money out whenever mm-hmm. you want. So there are people who say so there are people who say you know it, it, they, it can't, they can't cause as much trouble as people like you are saying they can 
Right. Uh, if you recall, maybe the same people were saying that subprime is only 500 billion. So, and if you take even uh, a totally exaggerated 10% of defaults, or, uh, the problem will be contained to 50 billion. If you recall, they were the same people. Now we are at 600 billion write downs and still running. The IMF is predicting 1.4 trillion in total write downs, so we are not even halfway through. So when do we get to call you back and see who's right? <laughs> when we're done <laughs> with the crisis. When we're done with the crisis. Yes. All right, so like next Tuesday or something? <laughs> I hope. I hope you're right. Thanks, Elisa Parisi of RGE Monitor and David Kestenbaum of Planet Money. And thanks, everyone out there, for sticking this out. You know, Adam is always saying that this stuff is very tough stuff. Amy Innes, I think the answer to your number question is something like $2 trillion inside hedge funds, although it's hard to know. And as for whether Rubini is right about this gloomy forecast, too, eh, stay tuned. Now, let's take a look at the economic crisis we know we're having. Ian Brenner is the president of Eurasia Group. We can see them actually right outside our window. We can see this great blue awning they have over a rooftop terrace that we envy. Bremer's job is to explain how the markets affect global politics. He sat down with Adam and Mike Pesca. I mean, doesn't the U.S. still, I mean, we're still the most powerful economy in the world, even after all of this crisis, aren't we? Well, that's certainly true, though the countries that the United States relies on in terms of uh, buying its treasuries, um, maintaining effective trade, uh, are very different than it used to be. And a lot of those powers think that they have a lot more leverage uh, than they used to. Um, You see this in terms of America's energy dependence. You see this in terms of America's budget deficits and trade deficits. And if I understand what you're saying, you're basically saying... We need oil, and places like Venezuela and Saudi Arabia and Nigeria have oil, which gives them influence. We need money. We need people to buy our treasury bills, which means China has influence. Look, I was just in China. I was in China two weeks ago. And I have to tell you, on the basis of a week traveling around that country, if you were not watching the news, you would not have known a financial crisis was going on. You talk to Chinese governmental leaders, talk to state enterprise leaders, talk to major executives, and they had a lot to say about the uh, the poison milk scandal. Mm-hmm. Um, but they they were focused on China, and that's you know sort of a very different environment than one you get when you go over to Japan or Singapore or when you travel to Europe. And when they do talk about the financial crisis, it's we told you so. Uh, The United States has been telling us what to do in terms of uh, openness and financial regulations for years, and they don't have their own house in order. Uh, The world will have to bail them out. But what we need to focus on, we, China, is our own growth. We need to focus on developing our own market. We need to invest in our own infrastructure. And you go to a place like Moscow, and you also see uh, that the state sees this as an opportunity to go in and ensure that they have control of their own economy. This is a very different perspective than the one you will see 
from developed states. And we can sit here and we can say, well, that's wrong, and they're going to get hurt if they don't recognize the importance of maintaining these global institutions. And that's true to a certain degree. It's not true to a certain degree, but we need to recognize that they see it differently. And they, they see it not only in terms of the uh, you know, profitability of the global economic system, but also their own national security interests, which frequently cut very much against uh, the interests of a Western-led global financial architecture. Are there any governments that like this, that are winners here, that like a global systemic financial crisis? Well, I mean, clearly the North Koreans saw an opportunity in the sense that they look at everything around their world, they put their finger in the air and they say, how can we make more money out of this? So when the U.S. is distracted with the financial crisis and Bush is almost out of power, you know, they say, okay, let's play around on the nuclear issue and squeeze some more cash out of them, which is basically what they did. Um, and, you know, you've got a few countries like that at the margins. I mean, do the Iranians like the fact there's a financial crisis? Eh, for propagandistic purposes, they like the fact um, that uh, there's a problem um, with the United States. But on balance, I think they'd prefer oil prices to be higher. Uh, so in general, I would say no. This kind of a systemic financial crisis for the short term hurts everybody. And the reason for that is because you are throwing fundamentals out the window. No matter how strong your real economy right now, markets are getting hit. Uh, you know, it doesn't matter if you are in the Gulf, if you're in Saudi Arabia, where you've got oil priced in at $45 next year, uh, if you're in Brazil with extraordinary agriculture and local support for uh, President Lula, um, if you're in China um, with the incredible surpluses they've been running, everyone gets hit badly by the financial crisis, except for the odd couple of rogues and misfits. What really is the question is what happens when you start to get out, when you've hit bottom and liquidity starts to come back in the system, do you start to see um, a real pickup for certain states? A lot of folks have been coming out in the last week or so and said, now we should be long emerging markets. And my view and by long, I just I like to translate the jargon. By long, you just mean, sh do we believe that emerging markets are going to grow? Should we invest in them? And by emerging markets, we mean in mean the the best of the third world, the the best <laughs> of the third world, uh, sort of some some of perhaps the middle ground of the. Of I the mean, developing even Korea, states. Taiwan, yeah, you know, Asian sure. tigers, sure. Yeah. Brazil, Russia, India, China, Mexico, Turkey, and, and, and my perspective is that actually these countries are going to disaggregate very strongly. Some are going to do quite well because their fundamentals and their political stability will be strong. Some will get utterly crushed because they will not be able to move quickly to create policies that are necessary to deal with um, the, uh, the, the, the volatility and the turbulence in the international markets. And so as a consequence, you really are going to need to have a strategy that looks at individual countries and does not consider the emerging markets, the developing states, as a, as a unified asset class. So, um, and I think Transdenister, they're, they're pretty, they're probably happy about what's going on. <laughs> yeah, right. sure. Moldovan yeah. separatists, uh, they're all over the financial right. crisis. Absolutely. Right. I don't think they have a banking system, so it's probably okay. Right. Well, actually, talking about separatists, one of the things you talk about in your note, which, you know, because you're not bringing us a lot of good news, let's be honest, but uh, you, you address, there, there's so much comparison of right now to the 1930s. And of course, one of the big effects of the last massive systemic financial crisis, the Great Depression, was the rise of some of the most heinous 
fringe groups coming to power, the Nazis, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, you, you're a little rosier on that, that we will not see a repeat of that. Is that fair to say? I am. I, I don't think you have the social structure uh, that uh, that is as, uh, as as polarized in Europe, for example, certainly in the U.S., that you would need to actually create that. You don't have the same territorial claims of individual states and regions on others. I think it's very unlikely you're going to see the rise of extremist pow- parties into actual power. What I think you are going to see is more... Uh, fringe support uh, to uh, oppose immigration, for example. You'll see more calls for local protectionism. You might see more support for local autonomy movements in places like Belgium and in Italy, which will just cause more economic inefficiencies. So, you know, I think we do need to be clear. There's a lot of negative development that comes out of a global recession. It's hard to be very rosy about that in the near to medium term, but we also need to recognize that the relative stability of these developed states helps to ensure that you don't get the absolute worst scenarios that some are increasingly painting. And so when, you know, when the, you know, in 50 years when when we have a political economy history of the 21st century, is this crisis, what we've been experiencing in its acute phase for the last month and in its overall phase for over a year, is this an inflection point? Is this a turning point in the U.S. experience, the American experiment? Or is this just one more moment in in the emergence of other powers that, that I guess started with the fall of the Berlin Wall and the, the end of the old system, the bipolar uh, Soviet U.S. system? I think it's a little bit in between. I mean, 9-11 was an inflection point in the sense that after that, Americans recognized that being the world's sole superpower was going to have significant cost attached to it. It's going to have significant economic costs, political costs, human costs, security costs, you name it. I think that over the course of the last year, with this financial crisis, with the Russian war in Georgia, uh, what we are seeing is that increasingly the United States is not prepared to act as the world's only superpower, Um, and that we are moving from a U.S.-led unipolar system to a nonpolar system, not a multipolar system, a nonpolar system. And that is not a stable equilibrium. And what, what I mean by nonpolar, a multipolar system implies that you have a bunch of different states around the world that have different and competing ideas about the way the world should look. What I'm suggesting is we are actually moving into an environment where lots of states have a great deal of interest in what their region should look like. Russia has a very strong interest in what Eurasia should look like. China has a strong interest in what Asia should look like. But actually, nobody has a very strong interest in what the world as a whole should look like. And that is going to cause an awful lot of volatility. It's going to cause an awful lot of economic pain in the inability to deal with some of these big structural issues that are coming down the pike. Global warming, climate change, nonproliferation and the failure of that regime, collective security in places like Iraq, and the financial crisis. So I, I, I think this is we are moving into a period of uh, geopolitical instability, and your your start and, and the financial crisis is, is is a very important indication that.
that that's coming. But more a symptom than a cause? More a symptom than a cause. I think this is structural and it was coming either way. That was Ian Bremer of Eurasia Group with yet another rosy view. Don't worry out there. We're in this together. And we'll see you Friday on Planet Money. You can follow us online all the time at npr.org slash money. Send pictures of the economy. Someone today, Robert Smith from NPR, sent us a cell phone picture of um, a Halloween display that has Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac on tombstones. Send some more. We're really having fun with these. Also, tomorrow morning, we're going to be playing Economist House Call, and we'll be looking forward to spinning that out for you in podcasts and blog entries to come. I'm Laura Conaway. Thanks for listening.